We are facing completely new challenges, and we cannot afford to take any misstep in any direction. This will be China's fingerprint in doing its modernization in its own way, which is very, very different compared with many other countries like the United States or many European countries. China has a competitive advantage right now in terms of its political organization and system to deal with these sorts of problems to ensure that uh, the Chinese people have the best possible outcomes available to them. I think that continuity, stability amid chaos, that's how this Congress will be remembered. What Xi Jinping said is very simple. The secession of Taiwan is against the fundamental rights of China and will not be accepted. It is greatly preferable that this takes place peaceful means. The Taiwan question should be extremely easy for the United States to understand. Who is generally regarded as the greatest president in the history of the United States? It's Abraham Lincoln. What did Abraham Lincoln do? If you want to put it in present terminology, he defeated the secessionists. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Hello and welcome to the Chat Lounge. I'm Tuyun. Over the past week, as the nearly 2,300 delegates to the 20th Party Congress of the ruling Communist Party of China have been going through the work report delivered by Xi Jinping, observers from around the world have also been trying to decode the messages conveyed in the report so as to feel the pulse of the world's second largest economy's future development. And that's what we are doing today with three scholars. They are Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University, Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University, and John Ross, Senior Fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China. Great to have you all back on the show, gentlemen. Last week, we had a preview of the CPC Party Congress. And th this question actually goes to all of you, but we start with um, John. After hearing the work report delivered by Xi Jinping at the opening of the Congress, which key parts stood out to you? Or was there anything that exceeded your initial expectations, John? Well, it was not one single thing. I mean, exceeded expectations. I had very high expectations beforehand, and mm. these were generally confirmed. I mean, the, the most fundamental thing, I thought, was the clarity of the course which is being uh, pursued. Because Xi Jinping looked not merely at the situation for the next five years, that's until the next Congress, but for Chinese development over the next decades. And he set out an extremely clear course in terms of, firstly, the strategic goal, which is the construction of socialism with Chinese uh, characteristics. Secondly, the role of the CPC within that. Third, because I'm an economist, I obviously particularly pay attention to the economic parts of the report. Mm. The question of China's transition to a high-income economy because China is going to achieve during the next five years something which is unparalleled in human history, which is it's going to become a high-income economy by international World Bank standards. And as the work report perfectly correctly pointed out, China becoming a high-income economy will take more people to the status of high-income economy than all the rest of the people in the world already, because the population of high-income economies is about 16% of the world's population, and China's population is 18% of the world economy. So Xi Jinping was not making an idle boast. He was just making a statement of fact that China will give to more people 
the advantage of being in a high income economy with everything means in living standards, health, education, culture, etc. More than all the existing high income economies in the world. It's an astonishing fact, but it's uh, just a simple literal fact. So it's both the enormous goals and the realistic way of setting about achieving them. That was what struck me most of all about the report, both as clear strategic direction and the goals which are to be achieved in getting to it. Mm, I can feel the enthusiasm in your voice. And Joseph? Yeah, you know, I was listening to the speech on the front end, and I think the first thing that struck me was overwhelmingly his focus on development and linking this, obviously, to the goals of building common prosperity, improving standards of living, not being so much concerned about the old goals of very high growth rates, but uh, thinking more about uh, high quality development, innovation-led growth, this sort of thing that, you know, could improve uh, standards of living, access to quality education and healthcare, higher life expectancy rates, so forth and so on. The other thing that uh, stood out, because, you know, we didn't expect to hear much about Hong Kong, but we expected to hear something about Taiwan, given all the provocations in, in the past several years. And yeah, I think the message of peace and the desire to foster peace and a shared future for humanity was made very clear, but also the willingness, if necessary, to prevent Taiwan's independence, to protect Chinese sovereignty, that was made very clear. And then finally, the part where he talked about China needing to become autonomous, that we live in a world where there's a lot of chaos. And that, uh, you know, certainly he didn't make direct reference to Joe Biden's national security strategy, which has targeted China even more so right before the Congress. But, um, you know, we've known for some time that the United States was going to be targeting China's technology sectors and uh, Beijing has been preparing for this. And he emphasized this when he talks about uh, autonomy. But at the same time, you know, we see China still committed to globalization, to uh, internationalism. We see this with the Belt Road Initiative, the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative. But we also see it with uh, the domestic economic policy under the rubric of dual circulation, where on the one hand, we will try to build stronger domestic economy, but at the same time, still try to go outward, still try to promote uh, some export-led growth. Victor, your take here. Thank you very much. I listened very carefully to uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping's important speech. His speech is being reviewed and commented upon by all the party delegates and eventually, when duly amended and modified, will become the official party document. And this speech uh, will become the guiding principles for China's party as well as the government and the military and the whole people for the coming five years and beyond. I think he talked about three different things. One is intra-party process, including anti-corruption campaigns, how to make sure that the CPC remains vigorated and committed to a reform and opening to the outside world. And the second thing is CPC and China at large, including China's Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Macau regions. And the third thing he talked a lot about is CPC and China and the rest of the world. This is mainly because China is becoming increasingly impactful on the global stage, and whatever CPC is doing, whatever China is doing, will have major influences on the world. And I think in all these three aspects, he really not only talked about what happened to China, the great achievements over the past five years or even 10 years, and what he projects into the future for the coming 
five years and beyond. And I think he really dwelt upon several things. One is to re-emphasize the importance of development and growth, and then to emphasize that China will play an important role, increasingly important role, on the global stage. That means China's development is not only for China itself, but also very much contributing to global economic development, etc. He also talked about all the challenges that China will face in the coming years, not only normal challenges that we become accustomed to expect, but also major challenges that may come on the horizon in the coming years. And he rallied the whole party and whole nation to be fully prepared in taking effective measures in dealing with these new challenges. I think President Xi Jinping's speech is very important as far as China is concerned because it reorients the whole nation onto the path of building up China for the coming five years all the way up to 2035 and all the way up to the middle of this century. And people in China are more confident about what we need to do, about how China will need to put its actions together to get fully mobilized to achieve the goals. And the way he outlines the goals up to 2035, up to the middle of this century, as well as the top priorities for the coming five years are very well laid out. And it's very easy for all of us to fully understand Mm, what will happen in China in the coming years. Right. But Victor, have you found any, you know, changes? You know, Neil Thomas, a, a China analyst at Eurasia Group, he said, Xi Jinping actually changed the structure of the report fairly significantly compared to previous years. Because he said there are new sections on science and education, on, on national security, and on uh, the legal systems areas that have previously been addressed in other parts of the report. So having these new sections means, he believes it means, they are going to be even higher priorities. So, Victor, do you think this actually suggests reinforcing focus or priorities of, of these fields or any priority changes this time? Well, first of all, ever since 1978, when China started to embark on reform and opening to the outside world, there is no institutional individual knowledge base for China to rely upon. In a sense, every day China is on uncharted water and every day China needs to innovate and come up with more creative solutions to deal with the new challenges. For President Xi Jinping's speech, he demonstrated the same commitment to innovation and new creativity, even though more or less China still is in the same direction of opening to the outside world or greater opening and continued economic reform. However, the challenges that China is faced with today are completely different from, let's say, in 1978 or around the year 2000, or even compared with 10 years ago when Xi Jinping first became the paramount leader of China. China now is already the second largest economy in the world, and China is the most important manufacturing country with the highest uh, industrial output, for example. And China is the largest uh, trading partner with more than 130 countries and nations in the regions in the world. And now China is also faced with all these headwinds caused by the United States and some Western countries. And how China needs to demonstrate the wisdom and courage and vision and resourcefulness in dealing with these new pressure points and stand firm in defending its 
bottom lines, for example, and fundamental national interest and sovereignty and territorial integrity. This is really new tasks, not only faced by the new Central Committee, which will be constituted at the end of this party congress, and the new Politburo and the Standing Committee, for example, but really by the whole country and the whole CPC and the whole Chinese military. We are facing completely new challenges, and we cannot afford to take any misstep in any direction. So have you found any changes of priorities, or is it just the same as usual? There are important changes. For example, Xi Jinping emphasized the Chinese-style pathway to modernization. This is a new concept. It was never mentioned before. And we are all scratching our heads as to what is really meant by the new pathway to modernization with Chinese characteristics. And uh, uh, several things stand out as mentioned by President Xi Jinping. One is China will become more inclusive and uh, income bipolarization will be minimized so that the Chinese society will be more equitable. And then secondly, the Chinese economic development and the pathway to modernization will also be very much built upon awareness of environmental protection and the reducing emissions of all kinds, for example. And then social equity and stability will be very much emphasized in China so that when China really has reached the final stage of its economic development to become a comprehensively developed country, for example, China will be a very inclusive, equitable country, very friendly in terms of environmental protection and very eager to promote the well-beings of the Chinese people as well as to the overall economic international cooperation in the world at large. So this will be China's fingerprint in doing its modernization in its own way, which is very, very different compared with many other countries like the United States or many European countries, because they achieve their modernization in their own way. And I do not want to comment upon how they achieve their modernization, but China will need to be very unique in coming up with our own pathway our own methodology, modus operandi, for example, in achieving our own modernization. Now, let me turn to John. You've mentioned a lot of areas such as balanced development, but another area that has drawn wide attention is the emphasis on building a rule of law-based governance-free socialist country. Xi Jinping said that China must strive to build a modern socialist country in all respects under the rule of law, and that we must give better play to the role of the rule of law in consolidating foundations, ensuring stable expectations, and delivering long-term benefits. So what's the message here, John? Well, it's that China is... um well, any country needs rule of law, but in particular China, I mean, because China's got you know 1.4 billion people. I mean, it's a really, although it's called a country, it's really in terms of its population, it's a, like a continent. I mean, it's got the equivalent of the population of the you know the continent of Africa, mm. and you can't possibly run such a country with arbitrary individual actions and other types of things because you will simply produce chaos in the situation. And so therefore, China's got to install a proper run in the rule of law. We know there have been problems with that, with things such as corruption and so on. And so Xi Jinping is emphasizing this to create the stability for China's development. Or for the ordinary people, that they can have better access to, you know, legal assistance or things like that. Yes, certainly it affects ordinary people. They don't want to be subject to arbitrary 
actions and they want to be in a situation in which they are have predictable things if they carry out their affairs in a law-abiding way they know they're going to be left alone and if they don't carry out their affairs in a law-abiding way they're going to be punished and that mm. creates the certainty on which the society can develop and joseph from your perspective do you see anything needs to be further refined in this regard I think the main issue there, you mentioned um, people being able to to use the legal system, able to use it more. This has certainly been a focus that has been discussed on the sidelines of the Congress. But my sense is that what we've seen in the last couple of years in Chinese society is a, a concerted effort to develop the rule of law to meet emergent needs. In other words, it's not simply that we have to uh, make up for things that were missing in the past, but rather because China is so dynamic, because it's developing so quickly, laws, regulations, they have to constantly be revisited and themselves reformed. We see this, for example, with the new policies and procedures and rules, uh, and even laws related to policies like uh, the dynamic zero COVID policy. These are things that require you know, intensive efforts to build the legal framework to ensure that people's rights are protected, that they're clear about what their responsibilities are. This is what I really take from it. It's less to do with, you know, long-standing needs, but more to do with emergent needs. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. You all mentioned about this anti-corruption effort. Last week, we, we talked about the, what the CPC has achieved over the past 10 years in, in cracking down on corruption. Victor, what messages in that respect have you found on the party's agenda from the work report? Is it up to your expectation? Yes, indeed. Uh, I would say if President Xi Jinping has made major contributions and will be uh, recorded in history as making great legacies for China, his great contribution in leading the relentless campaign against corruption is definitely one of the most important legacies that Xi Jinping has been making and is still making for the benefit of China. In China, corruption used to be very deeply rooted and uh, the scale and the seniority of the officers involved are horrendous, for example. And if corruption remained unchecked and unthought of, uh, they may really cause the collapse of the Communist Party of China itself or collapse of the system in China. Therefore, it really took great courage and determination and capabilities for Xi Jinping years ago to start his relentless campaign and the leadership role in organizing the campaign against corruption. Now, in this regard, it really required a lot of audacity and uh, courage on his part because many of these corrupt officials in the party, the military, the government, in the SOEs, uh, were very high-ranking, and they actually commanded a lot of power. And uh, normally, for example, leader under normal circumstances probably would not have mustered that much courage to deal with such high level, a very intensified level of corruption to start with. So I think uh, this is truly one of the greatest contributions by Xi Jinping to the CPC as a ruling party. And I think China benefited hugely because the Chinese Communist Party is now much cleaner and the Chinese military has been completely revamped. And most of those corrupt seniors of the military leadership have been cleaned up. They are now serving jail terms, for example. And I think 
this has won tremendous amount of support. And this will be one of the most important pillars of support for the continued leadership mm. by Xi Jinping. Another issue uh, that's been closely watched by the rest of the world, especially the international business community, is the exit of, uh, of China's current COVID policy. I think last time, Joseph, was it you that brought up this issue first during the show? H- have you noticed any signal indicating whether China may change it or keep it as it is now? A lot of people are, are still wondering about this, but uh, here's my assessment. First, in fact, the policies have relaxed quite a bit over the past year. We know that uh, the quarantine times for uh, international arrivals has dropped significantly. We know that the testing requirements have, have dropped significantly. We know that it's easier for people to enter the country. There's still some problems with, with flights from some countries, but nevertheless, uh, we also see that the policies for Chinese people going out are taking a significant step forward just in the past uh, week or two. Furthermore, with, with the actual policies of control, they've become much more fine-tuned. So, for example, we recently had a close contact in my building, and we locked for two days and did tests. Mm. And then once everyone uh, cleared, we were all released. And previously, that would have possibly sent all of us to the cabins, you know? Yeah, the uh, so period is have, shorter. Have, I think um, it's absolutely... Yeah. Quite shorter than previous yeah. policies. Yeah, it's it's not only shorter, but uh, a lot less dramatic. So I think things have already relaxed quite a bit. I doubt very seriously that we will see a wholesale dropping of the policy. Uh, I think we'll continue to see it refined. Maybe we'll see quarantines uh, dropping to three days or four days or something like this. And I think we'll see um, more options for people going, leaving the country, for Chinese leaving and so forth and so on. One of the things that's, that I was discussing with a colleague in uh, a think tank in Guangzhou is we, we shouldn't be surprised if we see the government uh, maybe experimenting with, um, for example, you know, we, we were just trying to imagine things that they might do given the way that they've operated uh, when it comes to other issues. For example, what if they put uh, Shenzhen under Hong Kong rules? Or what if they put uh, uh, Hainan under Hong Kong rules and then see how well they controlled? Because you know, both Shenzhen and Hong Kong, they can create borders and barriers, but also uh, use these places to open up. So it may be that we will continue to step down and then we'll see how things evolve over the next several months, uh, or it may be that they might start experimenting with uh, opening up in, in limited areas, kind of like they experimented with uh, special economic zones. That's a good um, suggestion, but, but I'm not sure people there in Shenzhen or Hainan would uh, take that advice. Well, maybe not. But uh, eventually, I think it's clear that that uh, if we can open up and do so in a reasonable way without incurring a lot of deaths, then that would be a desirable thing for us all to achieve. And, you know, if the government can stage resources, you know, make sure that there are plenty of ventilators and, and medical staff and drugs and whatnot in certain locations, then they can see about how well this type of thing. And, and I, you know, my sense is it would be better to open in, in smaller areas than in larger areas. But this is just what some people are talking about in terms of how we might move forward and not necessarily what, we, what we've heard in absolute terms about how they will do it. Sure. And Victor, what do you think? Uh, the spokesperson of the Congress said uh, China's COVID prevention and control strategies and measures will become more scientific, more accurate, and more effective. You know, the coordination between COVID prevention and control and economic and social development will be further refined. Do you think that can assure foreign investors 
Well, for this uh, dynamic zero COVID policy that China has been uh, practicing for almost three years, allow me to make several observations. Mm. One is that China's dynamic zero COVID policy has resulted in the fact that China has saved as many people as possible from infections or from deaths from infections. If you look at the United States, its population is about a quarter of that of China, is that right? But they suffered about more than one million deaths. Now, using simple mathematics, China would have suffered more than four million people dead because of infections. And then if you further assume that the public health system in general in the United States is about twice as good as that in China because of China's large population, then you will be shocked to see that China's death rate probably will be about 8 million to 10 million. Mm. Now, I would say no political leader in China would ever tolerate that horrendous amount of deaths for the Chinese people. And China and the CPC has really taken it upon themselves that saving people from infections and saving people from dying from infections is part of the human rights for the Chinese people. So they deal with this not only in terms of scientific consideration, but also as a very important political consideration. Now, China now says they will not abandon the dynamic zero COVID policy. This is absolutely important. But that doesn't mean that the policy itself will not be further refined and modified because we already reduced from 14 days plus 7 days to now 7 days plus 3 days. And why not after the 20th Party Congress, it will be further reduced to 3 days plus 1 days or mm. eventually only 3 days. I think the other panelists were absolutely right. You have increasing flexibilities demonstrated in many other ways in the policy themselves. Now, the other thing is that China really puts science first. China is not doing this without knowing the economic costs mm. that China will need to suffer. But China has made a deliberate choice. They know that the dynamic zero COVID policy will save the lives of the people on the one hand, but also cause economic costs. But they still choose to save as many people as possible, fully aware of the economic inconveniences they will cause and fully aware that every day, every citizen going through this very cumbersome system will suffer personal inconveniences, including people like me. Every day or once every three days, I suffer a lot of inconvenience. Mm -hmm. But I'm fully aware that all these inconveniences are meant for a greater good. That is to prevent as many people as possible from getting infections and dying from the infections. Now, I hope business leaders academics or government officials in other countries will fully appreciate that China is doing all this for the overall benefit of the Chinese people. And also the overall cost, the all-in cost to China is actually very low. Why? Because we have the certainty that wherever confirmed infection case is discovered, China has a well-built system to spring into action, to immediately take out this infection and to make sure that minimum amount of people will get infections. And China will never allow a situation of what we call the herd immunity to happen to China, because you are talking about 1.4 billion people in China. And the mobility of the Chinese people, aided by this very brand new fast speed railway system, is tremendous. So if an infection is discovered without 
been taken care of, for example, the infections can spread around in China like wildfire. And then, especially when you talk about people in the rural areas, they have worse access, disadvantages in accessing the public health system, for example, then you may expect a larger number of people getting infections or even eventually dying from infections. Therefore, I think China will do several things. One is stick as a matter of philosophy and policy to the zero COVID policy. But on the other side, always look at science first and come up with better vaccines, better medicines and cures, and better mobilization capabilities for the Chinese people with the aim of minimizing economic costs. Now, allow me also to mention one thing. No country in the world has the capabilities to do what China is doing, because what China is doing really need to require high level of social mobilization, a commitment of the government in terms of financial support to do all this very large-scale checking and uh, quarantine uh, matters, and also the general support of the people. And further, the brand new AI system, 5G system, 6G system, which makes everyone in China easily plugged in into this nationwide seamless network. It's amazing how China can do this. And it's also equally amazing that no other country, for whatever reason, cannot do what China is doing. So don't focus on the outside, also focus on the upside. I'm very proud that China has managed to come up with this, what I call, great wall in fighting off pandemic. And this infrastructure, that will be the great legacy that China will leave behind for future generations of people in China, will ensure that whatever pandemic eventually taking place in China, either because of origination from nature or man-made, for example, or a possible bio-attack by another country, for example, will be guarded against by this great wall of anti-pandemic infrastructure. Mm. And everyone in China will be covered by this seamless, comprehensive nationwide network. Right. So the people in China will enjoy the luxury of living in a big bubble. This bubble is very big, covering 1.4 billion Chinese people. Yeah, actually leave no one untaken care of or unprotected behind them what you call the Great Wall. And let's move on to another goal for greater good, which is green development. So, John, when delivering the report, Xi Jinping said, we will advance initiatives to reach peak carbon emissions in a well-planned and phased way in, in line with the principle of building the new before discarding the old. But the report didn't mention China's timetable to peak carbon emissions you know, in 2030, and reach carbon neutrality in 2060, as what's done before. So some people are questioning whether China is able to keep its promises, especially, you know, against the backdrop of uh, soaring energy prices and people in some places, such as in Europe, increasing their use of fossil fuels. What is your evaluation of China's capacity to reach its set emission goals, John? Well, China is simply the world's leader in terms of um, renewable energy at the present time. And really, to be quite honest, when it comes to climate change, the most fundamental thing is, you know, power stations, to put it bluntly. I mean, there are other things which can be done, and there's the transport system, etc. But the single most important thing in the situation is the creation of uh, renewable energy. And China's shift on this is absolutely um, 
tremendous. I mean, it, it's installing more renewable power than any other country in the world by a huge margin. There is no discussion within China about whether the question of climate change is real. In the United States, they can't even agree over the question of whether climate change is real. There's a very serious threat that in 2024, Trump is going to become president again, and uh, or either Trump or Trump too, we may say, Trump isn't without Trump. And that will create um, a situation where the United States won't even stick to its uh, Paris Peace Accords. So, so far, there's no sign of China changing the targets which no, have been but set. But we did, uh, you know, um, I think in, uh, weeks or months ago, return to some coal for energy, not across the country, but in some provinces, though. Yes, but I mean, this is a tactical thing. You've got to, the, the transition to peak emissions by um, 2030 is what mm. we're looking for over for the next seven and a little bit bit of years. In, there's going to be some twists and turns in that. And I'm not even actually looking at a situation whereby you won't have to make some adjustments in that situation. But mm. the fundamental thing is to achieve it by 2030. So we shouldn't get confused by the difference between some short-term crisis you've got to respond to by temporarily powering up a few coal-powered power stations and what is the longer-term goal in, in the situation. Mm. All right. About this Chinese-style modernization, I think previously mentioned, um, the report highlighted the Chinese path to modernization. So why is there emphasis on the Chinese style here? How is you know Chinese modernization different from other styles of modernization? John, maybe you can touch upon that. Every country is completely specific. Anybody runs economic policy, and I you know, helped for eight years to run the, run the economic policy of London, which is the city, and that's not nearly as complex as running a country, mm. knows that every country is totally different. I mean, it's totally different to run a country of 1.4 billion people, which is socialist, and to run uh, what we might call, let's call an average-sized country in the world, you know, maybe 20, 30 million people. Um, the stages to development that. If you apply a policy which is very successful in one country and you apply exactly the same policy in the different conditions of another country, it may be an extremely bad policy. And one of the things that Xi Jinping outlined in his report is what he called the sinicization of Marxism. Just the, if we take the ideology of China, Marxism, as Xi Jinping has set out and is even more set out in the history of the CPC, it was a great advantage to China the inspiration of the Russian Revolution and the beginning of development of Marxism. But in this initial period, it also led to mistakes because China too mechanically copied uh, the example of Russia. It didn't adjust policy to the situation's own country and therefore made mistakes. And part of the great development of the CPC but, was John, that it assessed you, these mistakes. Right. If you have to outline or pick out some uh, features or characteristics of uh, this Chinese style modernization, what would you say? Well, the most important feature of it is that it's really the socialist development of a continental size economy. The world is divided not simply into the world is flat, as it was put. That is, there's no regional differences. Basically, the world is divided into a series of continental size scale blocks. There's one in North America, which is the United States, Canada and uh, Mexico. There's one in Europe, which is the European Union. The peculiarity of China, and also incidentally the peculiarity of India, is that they're large enough to develop a continental scale economy within a single country. China's is the most rapidly developing of these because it's socialist and which gives it all sorts of advantages in the situation. The result of which is China has therefore undergone the most rapid economic development and the most rapid 
improvement in living conditions of any section of any country in the world's history. In, in 1949, China was almost the poorest country in the world. Only 10 countries had a lower per capita GDP than China. And now China is about to become a high income economy with more people in it than all the other high income economies in the world put together. That is something completely unique. No other country in the world faces that specific combination of situations. And China's therefore um, adapting its policy to deal with it. So the policies of China are enormously successful, mm -hmm. but they are adjusted to the specific conditions within China. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Victor, what would be your pick from a Chinese perspective? Well, first of all, as uh, the other panelists emphasized, every country has its own uh, unique circumstances, history and background and endowments, for example, and China is not an exception. And China faced a tremendous amount of difficulties before. And in the process of achieving Chinese-style modernization, several things stand out. Comparing China with the other highly developed economies, for example, China has never invaded any other country or occupied a foreign land or exploited foreign natural resources, etc., or imposed a colonial or semi-colonial rules onto other countries. So China, from the very beginning, let's say in 1949, has really embarked on its own, relying on hard work, on the blood and the sweat, for example, of its own people to achieve economic transformation leading to modernization. Mm. Secondly, what China is doing right now is very unique because China is still practicing socialism with Chinese characteristics and China wants to build a more inclusive society, not a very bipolarized society. And China now is putting a premium on common prosperity, for example. And this doesn't mean that innovation will no longer be encouraged or incentives will not be given to entrepreneurship or technological breakthroughs. No, they will be rewarded as before. However, in terms of secondary redistribution, for example, China does not want to end up with a very small minority of the people in China in possession of huge number of wealth to the neglect of overwhelming amount of people living in abject poverty. That's exactly why China celebrated its fulfillment of the goal of eliminating abject poverty in China. But now China is in the second phase. That is to make sure that poverty will be eliminated, but prosperity will be more equally, equitably shared. This will be a very important part of Chinese modernization. Now, the other thing is that many countries went through the period of focusing on development to the neglect of environmental protection, for example, or social justice, you name it. But China wants to achieve modernization while fully recognizing the importance of environmental protection and fulfilling its obligations under, as what you just now mentioned, carbon peaking and carbon neutrality. And all these combined together will make China a more equitable society, a society where social justice will be enhanced. That will make China a very unique country among all the highly developed economies in the world for the background where it came from, from the paradigm upon which it achieved modernization, and also from the social justice and inclusiveness for how to redistribute wealth mm. among people of all walks of life in China. 
Right. John just mentioned synthesization of uh, Marxism. Joseph, I understand you've been studying Marxism for many years. So, what is your evaluation of Chinese Marxism? Some people say, you know, it's just、um, capitalized socialism or, or socialized capitalism, whatever you call it. Does does that make sense to you? Well, it's a really big question. Yeah. And,、uh, But try to <laughs> answer it briefly. Yeah, I'll resist the urge to slip into a lecture since this is the the seminar that I offer every year. <laughs> All right. But、uh, you know, I think that the the first thing is Chinese Marxism is still very、uh, important to the way Chinese leaders and and even、uh, a, a lot of people who are not leaders how they think. The method and the historical approach to understanding human development.、Uh, these are dialectical and historical materialism, and、uh, we still see this way of thinking very operational today. You know, we can go back to the fundamental concepts of building socialism with Chinese characteristics, putting people first, and seeking common prosperity. Now, with Xi Jinping trying to fulfill the second half of, of Deng's promise, some get rich first, so that we can then leverage that wealth to develop other. Parts of the country and to and to redistribute the benefits. Concepts like one country, two systems, the dual circulation concept. All of these are are dialectical concepts that are demonstrating this dialectical and historical materialist way of thinking. We also see it. A comment that I made earlier in the show, where China, with the rubric of dual circulation, is going to build national autonomy, but still move forward with globalization and internationalism.、Mm-hmm. This is very much in line with with some of the basic concepts of classical Marxism. And of course, we still have the organizational values associated with Marxist-Leninism, with、uh, CPC and the Vanguard, with、uh, democratic centralism, people's democratic dictatorship. These concepts were reiterated when、uh, Xi Jinping was talking about the broader、uh, development of whole process、uh, democracy. So,、uh, in all of these senses, we can see that、um, there's still this very powerful instrumental role for for Marxism in thinking about China's place in time. How it wants to develop and what its core values are.、Mm, but if I、uh, want to give me just one aspect, if when you say it, people will immediately understand it. That's Chinese Marxism you're talking about. What would it be? Well, you know,、uh, I just said a whole lot of things, so I don't know which part. I, I think if we if we want to look at what、uh, Xi Jinping is really emphasizing above all is its people-oriented、uh, common prosperity. Connect、mm. this with、uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics and、uh, the idea that、uh, human rights begins with、uh, subsistence, with people having the right to survive. Human rights begins with people not dying from COVID, as Victor was pointing out earlier. So all of these things, putting people first, putting people over profits, focusing now on higher quality development, standards of living. You know, previously China was forced by circumstances to accelerate its growth in, in uneven and unequal ways in order to get into the game and to close the gaps that it had with other countries. But now it can it can return in some more fundamental ways to the socialist values that were always there. But had to be pushed to the back burner a little bit during some of the reform and opening up period. Fair enough. Actually, on the Taiwan question, John, have you found any messages, or is the rhetoric more assertive than before, as some people would put it? No, I think it's p- perfectly calm and reasoned. I mean, it's nothing like if you want to have assertive rhetoric. 
Um, how about the situation which is going on in the United States, constantly proclaiming they're the greatest country in the world, which means your country is less good than us. China doesn't say that the, uh, China is the greatest country in the world and everybody else is inferior to it. It says that each country in the world is unique and uh, specific. And I note, for example, one of the nice things I read, because I obviously read many accounts by foreign leaders, their trips to the China, that they're treated in, in an equal and respective way. I don't, it's the United States, which is being assertive. I mean, China has got 800 military bases around the world, mm. like the United States has. What China is, explains is calmly and reasonably its position, because in very serious matters, there is no virtue at all in boasting, neither is there any virtue um, in excessive modesty. In When you're dealing with very serious matters, the only thing there's a virtue in is being extremely realistic. And that's the fundamental thing which struck me about Xi Jinping's report. It was extremely realistic and to the point. It's not assertive or boasting. And the statements which seem extremely striking such as that uh, China will have a high-income economy with more than the population of all other high-income economies in the world put together. Mm. That's not a boast. That's just a statement of fact. Um, so uh, I think the nature of the report was extremely calm and reasoned. But on the Taiwan question, some people say, you know, previously more stress was laid on, um, you know, peaceful reunification. But this time, um, Xi Jinping actually talked a lot about not giving up, you know, reunification by force such a possibility. Well, well, yeah, but look, it's, the Taiwan question should be extremely easy for the United States to understand. It's very dangerous that they don't, right? Who Who is generally regarded as the greatest president in the history of the United States? It's Abraham Lincoln. What did Abraham Lincoln do? If you want to put it in present terminology, he defeated the secessionists. That is, if you actually, of course, that was the Civil War, but it mm. was the secession of the Confederacy. He said, there are no circumstances in which we will accept the division of the United States. He urged the South not to secede. And when it did secede, he didn't threaten the use of force. He sent the Northern Army in, uh, in order to destroy it. And he's regarded as the greatest president of the United States. Taiwan is an integral part of China's territory. It will no more agree to secession than it would have done to the, the South being allowed to succeed for the United States. I mean, if Abraham Lincoln had said, oh, well, the seats, the South is going to succeed and secede and I'm going to do nothing about it, he would probably have been regarded as the worst president in the history of the United States, not the greatest president in the history of the United States. And what Xi Jinping said is very simple. The secession of Taiwan is against the fundamental rights of China and will not be accepted. It is greatly preferable that this takes place peaceful means. China has been very patient and has used very great um, restraint and sense in order to achieve peaceful reunification, but reunification will be achieved. That's that's the end of the matter. Mm. And it should be extremely simple for the United States to understand from its own history. I can see that uh, all three of you have, um, you know, high appreciation of this uh, work report, but the best laid plans of, of mice and men often go awry. So, my next question is, are there any potential challenges that could hinder or, or even lead to aberrations from this plan? John? Well, yes, the most fundamental ones are the external circumstances. China is achieving something which has never been achieved in the whole of his, human history before. It is almost one fifth of the world's population. And it has taken it in just over 70 years, that is in a single lifetime, within a single lifetime of a person, from almost the world's poorest country to by far the largest high-income economy in the entire world. Enormous challenges 
are confronted in this. And the point is that China has uh, successfully overcome these. Does it mean there has never been any mistake made at all? No, absolutely ridiculous. Obviously, corruption was allowed to go too far, and this has been is now being dealt with. The ability is not that you never make any mistakes at all. It's that the mistakes should not be very big. If there are any mistakes, they should be corrected, and that the fundamentally correct course uh, should be taken. That's what China's proved that it can do, and outlined on the basis of Xi Jinping's report and the practice of the CPC, there's every reason to be confident that, that it will continue to be. And this is the biggest step forward that is being taken for the whole of humanity, because I can look at it internationally. The whole of the world should be applauding the enormous step forward for the whole of humanity that is being taken by China's present development. And it is appalling that the United States is attempting uh, to prevent this process taking place. That's, that's not merely my view. There's a very good article in yesterday's Financial Times mm. by Edward Luce saying that the United States is doing everything to attempt to block China's development. Mm, right. And, and Joseph, what would you say might be the potential challenges? Is the situation across the Taiwan Strait um, the most uncertain factor? Well, it is an issue. Uh, to go back to your earlier question, I think we all anticipated that Taiwan would be a, a topic that uh, he would focus on in the report. And to be honest with you, I, I didn't find what he said to be strikingly different from, from what has been said previously. Although the way we saw some of that reported in international media tried to spin it as though he was taking a harder line. I, I don't think that it was really... I think it could have been much harder than it was given all the provocations that have mm. happened in recent times. But if we talk about possible black swan events, you know, there's strong evidence to suggest that the current uh, pandemic is uh, correlated with climate change. We know that climate change is still getting worse and likely to get even worse <laughs> because of the conflict in Ukraine and as well as the diminished capacity to fight it that was already a problem due to COVID. To go back to another point that where you were asking about China's ability to reach its carbon neutrality goals, well, you know, because of extreme weather, it's you know having an effect on China's ability to produce uh, some clean energy. Some you know as we've had rivers dry up and, and other concerns, um, and it's forcing people to recalibrate. And you know, is this going to continue to accelerate? Is there a tipping point? Uh, we don't yet know. But we do know that the higher cost, uh, the inflationary cost associated with energy in particular, are going to make a lot of things more challenging. There's been a lot of talk whether or not it's a, a, a real serious concern, but a lot of talk about the fact that uh, Europe is sliding into a deep recession, that uh, Europe may itself have to abandon its own carbon neutrality goals, or at least delay them significantly. But there's also the talk that Russia may resort to nuclear weapons. If we have that type of situation happening, then we will have a fundamental shift in geostrategic reality and thinking. Another issue is because uh, OPEC plus has cut production and we mm. see now the possibility of hyperdollarization. this is going to put tremendous pressure potentially on currencies around the world. And it can lead to various currency collapses and then eventually the collapse of the dollar itself. And we may be looking at a future, the post-dollar future, uh, but a very difficult ride in the meantime, where countries will have to use the dollar to buy oil, but also to prop up their own currencies in a time when there's increasing dollar scarcity. So there are all these sort of black swan events that uh, can uh, prove to be massive spoilers. But I think, I think Xi Jinping is right. He's had this message that he's repeated again and again, namely that, that there are a lot of challenges right now, but that China is very confident in its ability to meet these challenges and, and even to turn some of them into opportunities. And yeah. honestly, you know, I think that uh, it, it's clear that there could be a lot of 
difficulty for China ahead. But I, I'm really convinced that there is no other political system that is better able to manage the type of crises. In other words, that China has a competitive advantage right now in terms of its political organization and system to deal with these sorts of problems to ensure that uh, the Chinese people have the best possible outcomes available to them. And a final question to all of you: It's about the positioning of this twentieth、um, Party Congress of CPC. So, looking back at the history of the CPC, th- there have been, you know, some notable milestones in Party Congresses. So, what's the significance of the twentieth Congress against the backdrop of a global economic turmoil and heightened geopolitical tensions? Let's start with、uh, John, please. Well, I think the CPC has, of course, done innumerable things, but there are three absolutely fundamental turning points. One is the process which led to 1949 and the creation of the、um, People's、uh, Republic of China. This, let's call this the period of the development of Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong thought, etc. That is the creation of the PRC. The second one is around the period of 1978, which is the reform and opening up,、uh, the period which was set encapsulated by、uh, Deng Xiaoping, although of course many others were also involved,、mm. which set China on the path of economic development. And, and the third is the process which has been taking place since the election of Xi Jinping as General Secretary, and that is the new era, the trans, as the way I see it, the transition of China. Towards a high-income economy and a modern socialist state. I don't mean that there have not been any other great contributions in addition to these, but these are the three fundamental turning points. And the Twentieth Party Congress is part of the third and most recent of these. Thanks, and Joseph. Well, you know, I think in the future we'll look back on the Twentieth Congress and say there was incredible foresight. I don't think people think of it this way, but now, but I think there'll be incredible. There's this idea that there was incredible foresight that it should have been obvious to many people that we were entering a period of intense global change and chaos, danger, uncertainty, so forth and so on, and that the Chinese political system opted for stability, for continuity in its leadership that they had found. Effective leadership that they had implemented, effective、uh, anti-corruption and governance reforms that they had significantly advanced the rule of law, and that they had entered this new era well prepared to deal with these growing challenges, both the challenges of China's own economic and social transformations given its, its current development stage, but also the broader implications of what we're seeing around the world. And the backdrop of this is. We see relatively new and ineffective leaders in many other countries: the United States, the UK, Germany, Italy. All of them are struggling, and Japan struggling to deal with these problems, and in many cases, doing a, a terrible job. Their own people furious with what's happening. And in China, what we're doing is we're saving people and we're protecting the nation and, and taking one step forward at a time, or even many steps forward at a time. So I think that continuity, stability amid chaos—that's how this Congress will be remembered. And last but not least, Victor, please. Well, I think the Twentieth Party Congress will be remembered as a major turning point, and will also ensure that the Twentieth Party Congress will be that most indispensable link in this long chain leading towards. The rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Quite illuminating. Thank you for that. And on that note, we wrap up today's chat. Many thanks to Victor Gao, Chair, Professor at Suzhou University; John Ross, Senior Fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China; and Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University, for insights. Please feel free to leave a review for us either on the topic or on the show, and subscribe to the Chat Lounge. Wherever you get your favorite podcasts, I'm Tu Yun. 
Thank you for being with us. See you next time. Thank you.